once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill up the wall with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome back to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure, where we are known to sometimes appropriately say our names at the same time. There. Mm. We're done for the week, and we should go home. Nope, we've got disclosures before we leave. First disclosure, we are bald, both of us, bearded, bald people. I know if if that didn't scare you away and cause you to change the channel immediately, bear with us. We're going to bore you with more disclosures. Uh, The name of this program is not coincidentally also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm called The Personal Wealth Coach. The people talking on this radio program are the principals of that firm. What does it mean to be registered with the SEC? Um, It means that they are the ones that get us in trouble if we do something bad. It doesn't mean that they have given us any kind of approval or pats on the head, bald heads, by the way. Uh, And just because we're registered with them, as at the firm level to give investment advice, we can't do that on the radio. Fiduciary investment advice requires us to know you. I know, that's really weird. And actually give you advice based on your circumstance. It also requires us to keep some level of privacy with that advice. So the act of broadcasting, it kind of shoots that in uh, below the whole line, if you know what I mean. So this is not advice. It is education. Why do we do this? I'm not sure. Partial insanity, possibly? Um... Uh, but we do. So we're giving you, hopefully, some education. We will take that mud and possibly turn it into muddy water so that you may be able to hear blues music. No, sorry, wrong muddy water. Uh, you may possibly have slightly better, better understanding of the world of finance. You want to deem for us? Well, the information that we present on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, however, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. However, we will warranty and guarantee that unsaid information is incomplete. Mm, Are you sure? Yes. Oh, very nice. Very nice. I warranty and guarantee that. Oh, yes. And if you wish to contact us. One more disclosure we have to add okay here we don't pay for this radio program that's right this is not paid commercial programming we also are not paid for this program we have been doing this he's been doing older baldy's been doing this since 1997 which is significantly longer than i have in younger baldy here i've been doing it since 1998 so he has a good eight to 12 months advantage on me on the radio program uh but Mm. Combined, can we combine that? Combined I experience. 90, on the, I think it was 96, but I may be wrong. Okay, so you might be 18 months ahead of me on that. Probably, that's uh, about right. Man, I'm never going to catch up. No, that's not combined experience. Because <laughs> we could have, you know, half a century or more of combined experience right, I, here. I've always considered such claims to be false and deceptive and manipulative. Yes, combined experience when you're experiencing the same thing is... Not not cumulative. There we go. That's right. a good statement. Non-cumulative combined experience. Right. Well, prices may be higher or lower when sold than when purchased. Uh-huh. Do you ever purchase a price? Yes. Okay. John, our 
chief inquisitor and most loyal questioner, uh, sends, as is tradition, pictures taken with his phone of the paper version of the Wall Street Journal through digital email that we may look at it with his pen writing on it. His question in the email is, what types and how large money-wise are these investments that are being reviewed by this group? The subject is foreign investment. It's, uh, there's a headline in the Wall Street Journal saying, foreign investment scrutiny tightened. First off, what group are we talking about? What's going on here? Um, during the Trump administration, a law was passed instituting a review of strategic enterprises with the executive branch's ability to stop purchases from foreign nationals and foreign governments. So the committee that was formed by that law, uh, by the Terra law, um, no, FIRMA law, was I, I got Terra FIRMA mixed, it's FIRMA law, uh, was the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. Now, this committee has nine cabinet-level departments part of it. It's not very well organized yet. Um, and the, uh, so, so the, the, the turnaround time on this is a lot longer than the requirement says it will be. What does it cover? If, you're, if you have a company or any United States company that has contracts with the U.S. government or is part of infrastructure, whether that be a port authority or an uh, electric company or a nuclear power plant or a software company that's doing encryption for the U.S. government, you fall under the authority of CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. And it makes sense. It's a really good idea. The Trump administration was signed off on it. President Trump signed the bill. Congress was Republican when it was passed. And by executive order, President Biden strengthened it. So this is something that I think everybody can look at, Democrat or Republican, and agree, yeah, we don't want China owning our encryption methodologies. We don't want China owning the company that builds our nuclear submarines. We don't, lock, we don't want Lockheed Martin to be owned by Russia. So uh, the size of the investment, this is the question, how big are they? How much money are we talking about? What are they looking for? And the answer to that, what types and how large money-wise are these investments? It can be as little as a penny. Any foreign investment into strategic areas has to be looked at by this committee. Now, how is it looked at? This is where things are not so organized. They're beginning to build the concept of who falls under their authority. Uh, there's a blanket of anybody that has ever had a contract with the U.S. government. That's what it says in the law. Well, that could have been 30, 40 years ago if you're IBM. Um, so they're having to put some regulations in place to say, what does that really mean? Active contracts, contracts that you're about to be active on, uh, also infrastructure areas. So how does it work? Currently, it's a, there's, let's put some air quotes around this, voluntary notice given by the company to the committee. And that's it. There's a form that they fill out and they send it in. It's a voluntary notice. If they don't do the voluntary notice, they can lose their company, which is why I had the air quotes around the word voluntary. <laughs> you can voluntarily tell us about this or we're going to come and take it from you.
of which if you are um <laughs> if you're dealing with children and you say this is a voluntary thing or you're in trouble you've been voluntold so the committee voluntells uh the companies that they need to send these notices the enforcement on this doesn't really exist yet but it will they haven't determined which of the nine cabinet level departments are going to enforce it because that's not really in the law it just says that it will be enforced uh, so there is jockeying for power. Who's in charge of this? Who's in charge of that? Who's got the chair of the committee? Who's the one that determines what's being talked about? That's all part of the organizational process. And the committee was only formed in January because that's when the law really came into effect. So there, nobody really knows yet. Uh, the, um, but the specific question is how large money-wise are these investments and what types. So I think I've covered that. As large as a penny, as long as it's a, considered a strategic company. That definition is very vague. The president can come in and say, IBM, you're now a strategic company and you've got a lot of foreign investments. So Yeah, but one, of the, one of the issues is, obviously, if a company is publicly traded on the New York Stock Exchange or wherever, people from outside of the United States can buy the shares. So you're just not going to find any company that's publicly traded in the United States of any size that is, does not have a foreign uh, ownership component. And I really think if they ever try to start enforcing that, they are going to find that the courts will throw it out and laugh as they go. So uh, the, the, uh, the core reasoning in the law, we can all agree on how it is enforced and who it is enforced on is where the quibbling is going to come, and it's probably going to get settled in court over the next four decades. So uh, talk about an obscure question and an even more obscure answer. Here you go. <laughs> the law was a feel-good law. It was a political law that was passed quickly, signed by the president, and everybody said, yeah, we got a law against foreigners owning strategically critical United States companies are owning enough of them. They can steal secrets or whatever. The problem is the law was so vague. And well, here's, here's the benefit from it. And this is a good thing. Um, as long as the president at any given time doesn't go nuts with this, it's a good thing. Mm. The president can step in based on any voluntary filing of a form. It doesn't have to come from the company and stop a large purchase of a company by a foreign power based on strategic means. Sure. It was much harder to do before the justice department had to get involved and they had a whole series of things they had to jump through to get it stopped. At this point, we have a law that doesn't have much in the way of court cases behind it. So the government can stop a merger or a purchase mm -hmm. or an acquisition at a moment's notice and they have to figure out how to contest that in the courts so it'll be a long enough pause for investigation to go through to say whether or not it's a good idea to go forward yeah now, I, is, I, I think it, is it the best way controlling to interest yeah go ahead and they put controlling interest in there in that law i would say yeah that makes that makes sense well one of the one of the problems with controlling interest versus not is i'll use an extreme example let's say huawei the chinese uh phone company 
that has a history of stealing uh, technology from other phone companies that are manufacturing in China. By a history of it, I mean it's a blatant history of theft. They got 5G technology before any of their Western rivals because they combined all their Western rivals' research into one research compendium library and came sure. out with it first. If they say we're going to buy um, a, a company that does broadband in the United States and we're going to buy mm -hmm. a bunch of the broadband infrastructure and those broad and that there's, you know, fiber optic cable that goes to the defense department somewhere in that infrastructure that they're buying. The ability to stop that is very limited by the government without this law. So this law comes in and they say, all right, now we have a big tool that's basically got no, nothing stopping it until it gets to court cases. So the law says that they can just stop it. They can seize, the U.S. government can seize the assets of the company being purchased. So like that now becomes government property, that big fiber wire that's going from one place to another is now government property. Well, there's a constitutional issue there. You know, you can't, eminent domain has to occur. You actually have to buy it. No matter if Congress passes or not, it's a constitutional level thing. The government can't seize assets without properly bidding on it or, or looking at the price and offering a market rate. So there's, it's a complicated area and it's a good thing that we have it, but there's, it's definitely too vague. So I would rather they get, man, are we nerds when we're talking about, if you look at the regulatory aspect of that thing and um, how complex it is, and we're saying it's too vague. Um, yeah. It'd be a lot easier if it was written in plain English so that we could say, this is what it means. But if you go to the U.S. Treasury website, you're going to need four attorneys with eight opinions to get an idea of what's going on. All right. Well, I've got another subject to jump to. There were a lot of boogeyman uh, words thrown about over the Inflation Reduction Act and the hiring, a mass hiring at the IRS. Well, there's a headline in the Wall Street Journal, the IRS faces a tight job market and competition for talent as it recruits thousands. This is important. The um, August unemployment rate was 3.7% which is really low and that's an important number because when you got 3.7% unemployment there's 3.6 no, 3.6 is where it dropped and okay um so back when they started hiring it's 3.7 this is when the article was written it's gone mm -hmm. down to 3.6 um however the un unemployment rate in the finance sector which is what this is is 1.3% Yes, there just basically isn't an unemployment rate right. there. Right, and that 1.3%, that is less than the monthly turnover in the finance sector. What does that mean? Well, if you're in finance and you go from one job to another, you're generally out of a job for less than a week. So that 1.3% is less than what happens in a month, a normal turnover, right around 2% is the turnover rate back and forth on the finance sector. And the IRS is going to that market to hire people because the people that they need to hire need to have some kind of expertise in finance if they're going to be in auditing, if they're going to be in any kind of a finance concept. And just for those of you who haven't been paying attention, government jobs 
in finance generally don't pay as much as non-government jobs in finance. So the terror that people had about, oh no, the IRS is going to get a bunch of high-powered auditors that are armed and immediately going to come out and start shutting down businesses and taking people to jail all over the place. Well, number one, people need to pay their taxes. That's important. Uh, and, and getting the taxes back is important. I know I don't like to pay taxes, but if we, if we don't pay taxes, then we don't really have roads or army or navy or anything else that we really appreciate as a public service. So they've got to hire these folks. They've got to train these folks and they're in a tight market. So this is kind of an update. They're supposed to hire um, at the, at the treasury department. This isn't just IRS uh, 87,000 people over by 2031. So over the next nine years, they've got to hire 87,000 people. Now, the current IRS workforce is 79,000. So it sounds like you're doubling up. But over the next five years, 30% of those are expected to retire. So we're got, we've got a lot of retirees in the, or new about to be retiring people at the IRS. We've got a bunch of people to train. What I would tell the people that were terrified that the auditors are coming tomorrow with you know, automatic assault rifles and so on, is that there's about to be a lot more confusion at the IRS than there has been even recently. We've talked about this as kind of a side note. Productivity falls when you hire a lot of people because you have to take your most productive people and stop them from being productive to go and train. We're about to be increasing the staff at the IRS at the same time that the most experienced staff at the IRS is leaving, expect there to be a lot of mess-ups and confusion. Just expect it. It's going to happen. We're going to have a mess at the IRS that we have to get through in order to get something reasonable at the other end of it. So rather than, being, than expecting very astute, well-paid folks to be showing up and knocking at your door rather expect to get the wrong forms sent to you by the wrong people and a confused mess going forward for at least the next five years and probably the next 10 there I, I'm, I'm solving fears on one end and adding to them on the other the IRS is going to be a bunch of incompetence for a while the most competent of them won't be able to do their jobs because they're training the other incompetence on how to be more competent. That will last a while. Go ahead. One of the things, though, and, and I realize that this is an unpopular position I'm about to take, is the IRS is tremendously under, underfunded. Yeah. Not only are they unable to process returns effectively uh, because they have an antiquated computer system and too few people, but there is a tremendous amount of out-and-out out cheating going on at a large level. Uh, I've encountered it for years peripherally. Uh, I see it happening. Um, there's nothing that, that I know of that I can do about it or anybody else can do about it unless the IRS starts checking. And if you don't like the deficit, if you don't like having a big deficit, most of that deficit, at least a few years ago, I don't know if it, and I think probably today it's probably true too. It wasn't when the, when the stimulus bills are being passed, a lot of that deficit would simply go away. If we had even an 80 or 90%
compliance with the tax laws. And by I, by, by I mean compliance, I don't mean little nitpicky things, which is what I think every, all of us are afraid of, is the IRS is going to come after us for some little nitpicky thing. I'm talking about out-and-out out tax evasion at a very large level. It happens. It's going on. A lot of businesses are doing it. A lot of people are doing it. And in the process of doing that, um, the rest of us have to pay more taxes. I don't like the IRS very much at all. As a matter of fact, the IRS and I went back and forth recently for about a year. It was very, very frustrating because I would send them a letter and then they would treat me like I hadn't sent them a letter and because of staff shortages. And I will admit something here. Ultimately, the relatively small amount of money the IRS said I owed them, at least from my perspective, um, I did owe them. They were right. We were wrong. We had made an error and we paid them. Uh, but it's very frustrating to deal with the IRS and it's very impersonal and it, you feel like you're talking to a machine. And, and I hate that as much as anybody else does, but I also recognize that we like the fact that we have a federal government and we have an armed forces and we have things happening at the federal level that we want to happen and we got to pay for it. Um, and there are people who cheat and they need to get caught. So that's all I got to say. Yeah. What would you like to talk about next? I think we can, I want to touch on something that's going on in the big picture that may be overlooked. There is a very clear division in the world right now between, on one side, autocratic states like Russia, China, Iran, and Turkey, as an example, although Turkey wanders back and forth in the middle. Sometimes autocratic, sometimes democratic, mm -hmm. most, mostly autocratic. And then the rest, and then the world over in the Western world, uh, it's generally referred to as the Western world, which is where democracy still works, apparently. And of course, then there's that there, we're back to having three worlds. And then there's the developing world where it's they're off somewhere else. Yeah. Anyway, well, it, it, there's an equal chance of being autocratic or democratic in the developing world in any given moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, things are not going well in the autocratic world at all. And Russia obviously started this off with an attack. Uh, China has been threatening an attack. In both cases, those major countries economically appear to be in some difficulty, to say the least. Um, this is a this is a big picture in the world. Yes, Europe is almost certainly sliding into recession, but they made a big boo boo. By the way, I read a really good article about that aspect. Uh, the dis the de of Germany is in the Economist. Um, Germany's economic industrial miracle over the last 20 years or so, it said, had been, has been obtained by buying energy very cheaply from one autocratic government, Russia, and selling goods to another autocratic government, China. And they, China is their number one customer in Germany. Uh, then obviously their energy came from Russia and they got cheap energy and sold a lot of stuff to China. Well, guess what? Now their cheap energy has gone away and it's now very expensive energy and they can't get it from Russia anymore. And China's economy is imploding. And this is a big thing. China, by most measures, has the second largest economy in the world. And it is, it, the, they stayed out of the major 2007 through 9 economic crisis by building lots of real estate. And the government funded building of real estate. And after that, bar people borrowing money to build real estate, a horrific thing. People who have bought homes 
in China over the last decade now see one-third of them that they've paid for, by the way. They've paid for these homes. They've taken out loans to pay for the homes, and one-third of them never got finished. There are uh, economic, there are companies like Evergrande, which was one of the largest real estate companies in the world, if not the largest at one point, that apparently have nothing. They are, if they were in the United States, they would be in bankruptcy court. They are seeing an implosion in their real estate market, at least as severe as the implosion we saw in 2007 through nine in the United States. And Jake, you're the authority on this. What percentage of the population of China is in lockdown right now? Uh, there's a 290 million. That's about a fifth of the population of China in lockdown right now. Uh, and that's this, a rotating lockdown. So it's not this, it's been running right around 300 million people since around February. So, and it's not the same people. So it's like playing hide the bean in the cups. It's shuffling all around. Only minimum lockdowns are three weeks. And some of them are months on months on months. So it has definitely slowed the economy. Uh, So what we're seeing is a a major issue going on across the globe. And and like uh, all the other stuff overseas, there's very little we can do about it. But I think it's good to be aware of the fact that Russia is being backed into a corner. Um, I don't know if we mentioned this last time, but there's reliable accounts that North Korea is now shipping ammunition to Russia. Right. Then the first North Korea, the the first Iranian drones have been captured by the Ukrainians in the Russian armament. So the Iranians are sending drones as well. Just quick side note, four countries in in the circle of influence of Russia that have been kept peaceful by Russian military are at war with each other right now. Azerbaijan and Armenia are back at it. Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan are back at it. And it's only that only started in this last week after the big Ukrainian counterattack. There's, so it's there's, fascinating. I've read a lot of history, and this reminds me of something. And so it's something to be prepared for, and it's a little scary. And that is, in World War I, similar things started happening in World War I to Russia, followed by a sudden, relatively unexpected collapse of the government. The this is entirely possible. The entirely possible that the entire Russian government could collapse on this in short order. Uh, and that they have nuclear weapons. That's a little scary. And we're out of time for the first hour. Yes, we are. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually give customized investment advice tailored to the people we're talking to. We do the management of the portfolio as well. Generally, this is higher net worth people. Um, but if you'd like to talk to us off the air about the subject, uh, you can uh, call us locally at 254-947-1111. And that's voicemail on the weekend, but real live people during the week. Uh, toll free, it's 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN, should you still have a landline. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can Sign up for our newsletter, read our newsletter, listen to radio programs going back, get podcasts there. You can get podcasts wherever podcasts are available. You can contact us through the contact form or email us directly at Jeff or Jake at tpwc.com. We actually read those things. Uh, And if you want to go back in and peruse the newsletters going back, see what we were saying last year at this point and the year before that, it's worthwhile. 
Till next hour, this is the Personal Wealth Coach.